You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 10th of November. And on the programme today, we looked at tourism. That's off the back of the announcement that the GCC six nation states have unanimously approved plans for a GCC-wide visa. So what impact is that likely to have on tourism here? Do we have the most to gain? Well, we looked into the numbers with Virginia Messina, who is Senior Vice President for the World Trade and Tourism Council. And we got the views of industry veteran Gerald Lawless, of course, the former CEO of Jumeirah Group. And he's also an ambassador for that World Trade and Travel Council. Meanwhile, there's been a series of headlines this week suggesting the climate crisis is becoming ever more pressing as global temperatures inch higher. We had a special report from CNN's meteorologist, Brandon Miller. And imagine if you could create fresh water from seawater using energy generated from the sea. Well, we spoke to an inventor who knows how to do exactly that. Dragon Tutish is the CEO and founder of Onica Technologies. And more schools in the UAE are trying to find internships for their pupils, particularly now it's legal for 15 to 18-year-olds to work. GEMS Director of Student Employment joined us on the show, as did Robbie Greenfield, who brought us up to date with all the latest sports news. We are going to be taking a look at regional tourism now, as those GCC states have unanimously approved a unified tourism visa system for the region. Now, it's not sort of happening immediately. It's still a proposal, but they have approved the proposal. (laughs) Who knows what happens next? Uh, But the general gist is the system, which is expected to come into effect sometime in the next two years, will include all six nations in the block. Now, whenever I say GCC, I always feel like I've added an extra C, but it basically includes Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, and of course, us here in the UAE. Now, the move was announced by the GCC Secretary General Yassim al-Badawi at the 40th meeting of Interior ministries in Oman. And he said that the decision will streamline travel logistics and will also underpin the continuous communication and coordination between the GCC states. I definitely said a C, an extra C there, didn't I? Um, it's really interesting, actually, because there's obviously a big foreign policy story around um, the sort of the, the, the close the sort of increased closeness, let's say, between these six countries who, you know, even just a couple of years ago, weren't that close. But we're not going to talk about the uh, geopolitics. We're going to talk about the economy instead. Who is, you know, going to benefit the most from this deal? Realistically, it's going to make it easier for you and I to travel around the Middle East. You know, you just get one visa, for example, for Saudi, and then you'd have it for Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman and Qatar. Likewise, if you're a tourist looking to come to the Middle East, you can just get one visa and you can do a bit of a country hop. Um, But 
who's going to benefit the most from that? You know, will it be us here in the UAE? Or do other countries like Saudi and Bahrain have more to gain? Those are just a couple of the questions I wanted to ask the World Trade and Travel Council. Uh, So I caught up earlier with Virginia Messina, who is Senior Vice President there. And she gave me her reaction. Well, Dubai, of course, is one of the strongest economies in the region. But something we're monitoring as we're still in recovery mode is that finally 2023, most regions will reach 2019 levels on in some cases surpass it. So of course, we go back to 2019, because it's as we used to call it the golden era of travel. No, we were doing so well, we were responsible for 10.4% of global GDP. And as we know, we took a big hit after the pandemic. And so we've been monitoring the recovery. But the good news is we're exceeding our expectations at our forecasts in terms of that recovery, with Asia Pacific and the Middle East taking the lead. So the Middle East is one of the regions that is recovering faster and that by the end of 2023 will be ahead of 2019 levels. So we're estimating about 5% ahead of where the region was back in 2019. So of course, this is um, excellent news. Now, to give you some, some numbers for the GCC countries, in 2019, our sector represented about $177 billion to the G- GCC economies, which is about 10% um, share and about 13% employment. So 13% of the jobs in the GCC countries were in travel and tourism, which, of course, is, is really good news and, and really positive for the economy. So as we know, as our sector continues to grow, we're creating new jobs. And so where do you see that going over the next decade or so? Because I think that's how you do your forecasts, isn't it? Yes, of course. So what we're seeing is a lot of the economies and countries in the GCC really taking travel and tourism seriously. I think they're really um, starting to see the great benefits that it brings, not just to their economies and jobs and employment, but also to their people and communities and how they're able to showcase some of their heritage, some of their culture, their gastronomy and so many different aspects of what these countries are. And of course, there's a lot of similarities, but as we know, there's also a lot of diversity and a lot of diversity in terms of products. So we know we have sun and beach destinations, but we have cultural and heritage sites. We have religious tourism. We have gastronomical tourism. So it really is a a very well-rounded destination when it comes to the region. So over the next decade, what we can only see is growth. And just to put things into perspective, what our data is telling us is that over the next decade, travel and tourism in the GCC will grow at a pace of about about 5.1% average, whereas the region and the economies within the region are only meant to be growing at 1.9%. So as we can see, travel and tourism growth is more than doubling, uh, nearly tripling the growth of the economy. And that only means that our sector is going to keep growing. But of course, we need to think of the role that both public and private sectors need to play in making this growth sustainable. Can you break that down into specific countries, for example? Are there certain countries that are going to see greater growth than others? Of course, Dubai is taking the lead in terms of what they represent. We did an analysis to different cities and what travel and tourism represents in the city is about 12.5 billion, followed by Doha, which is about 6.7 billion. This was back in 2022, actually. So 
that means that they have a more mature travel and tourism sector. Now, as we know, there's a lot of emerging destinations in, in, in the region, and we're going to see some of these taking a lot more importance over the next decade. So we work very closely with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, unprecedented investment when it comes to travel and tourism. We're seeing, I mean, part of the vision 2030 is for this sector to become one of the pillars of the economy, and we're very pleased to be partnering with them in this process. So they are also also take having really um, impressive growth. Oman is another country we work very closely with. They have an incredible product and they're putting a lot into sustainability and developing their infrastructure to continue welcoming international visitors. So lots of people say that these various different countries, that their tourist sectors will complement each other. It comes up the most whenever anyone says, so is Saudi Arabia going to take over from Dubai? I'd be really interested to get your perspective on that, particularly because of this GCC-wide visa that they're looking to introduce. First of all, the GCC-wide visa is a great initiative. It will only support the economies. Um, For decades, the World Travel and Tourism Council has advocated for visa facilitation, regional visas, and we know for a fact that there is a direct correlation between this type of initiatives or policies with a bigger influx of um, international visitors. And of course, that then translates into dollars to their economies and jobs created in our sectors. So we are very favorable of, of this. Their um, technology then play, plays a very big role in terms of enhancing security. So it's not because there is a regional visa or there is online visas or e-visas that security should be compromised. We know that technology helps us these days enhance um, security as, as, at borders while still having a seamless process and journey and, and a good experience for the travelers. Now, when it comes to the offer, I think these destinations that we were talking about, each each country and each destination is unique in terms of what they've got to offer. They all have their own history. They all have their own heritage, their own culture, and they're all different products where it is cruise, whether it's sun and beach, whether it's gastronomy, whether it's, well, all the incredible modern buildings that we can appreciate in a destination like Dubai. So I think that what the region can do is is promote themselves as a multi-destination. There's no reason to visit Saudi Arabia and not go to somewhere else. You could always market the region, say, visit Saudi Arabia when they come to Dubai or Abu Dhabi afterwards. They can complement each other. And I think travelers can definitely enjoy different products while visiting different markets. Now, really? of course, I live in the UAE. I live in Dubai. I've traveled to Saudi a few times and I have actually personally seen Alula and the offering there. And I've seen that it truly is exceptional. But I think it's fair to say that outside the Middle East, there is quite a lot of cynicism about Saudi Arabia being a holiday destination. Do you think that the kingdom is going to be able to overcome that potentially European-American cynicism. Definitely. I mean, WTTC hosted its annual conference, our global summit there last year. We had hundreds of CEOs from across the industry. All of these are investors representing the biggest brands across the industry, from hotels to tour operators, luxury operators, 
airlines, and, and they're all doing business in Saudi. So it is definitely one of the markets that has the biggest potential. They were all impressed about all the different products, as you say, Alula, Jeddah. There's so much to see, and there's so much for the world to still discover. So I think it's a case about, obviously, people getting to know about it, but also to get to learn the warmth of the people, the hospitality, the fact that this country is ready to welcome visitors and is expecting and has very, very ambitious targets to do this by the end of this decade, which is great. Virginia Messina there, Senior Vice President of the World Trade and Travel Council, giving us a few of the numbers, basically, when it comes to travel around the GCC and which countries are likely to benefit the most. I suppose as both or either a tourist and a business traveller, having a sort of GCC-wide visa would facilitate travel? I'm guessing it would facilitate travel. I mean, I know at the moment with Saudi, it's really easy just to apply online for an electronic visa. But would you as a business person or as a holidaymaker find it easier, find it simpler? Would it make you more likely to travel around the region? You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. And we are discussing tourism on the agenda today. That is after the Gulf Corporation Council, or widely known as the GCC, unanimously approved a proposed unified tourism visa system for the region. Now, uh, the system, which is due to come into effect sometime over the next couple of years, will include all six nations in the bloc. So that means Saudi Arabia, I always forget one, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar and us here in the UAE. Let's discuss so how it's going to benefit us here in the Emirates. And I'm delighted to say that joining us now to give us his perspective is Gerald Lawless, former president and a current ambassador of the World Travel and Tourism Council. And he was, of course, uh, also the former CEO of Jumeirah Group. Joining me now on our Zoom line, which is the first time we've tried it today, so I hope it's going to work. Gerald, how are you? Good to have you with us. I'm uh, very well, thank you, George. I hope you can hear me okay. We can hear you just brilliantly. Thank you very much and happy Friday to you. Let's get your views on this new GCC-wide visa. Do you think it is likely to have a big impact on tourism here in the UAE? We're, we're doing pretty well already without it, let's be honest. Well, I'm delighted, actually. It's something that uh, within the WTTC, we've been advocating for many, many years, not specifically with regards to the GCC, but the whole principle of actually making it easy to buy, making it easy to get visas, having visa-free travel for uh, tourists around the world. Because we know this is what makes the difference to actually facilitating travel and to encouraging people to travel. In fact, uh, our own uh, UAE Minister of the Economy, His Excellency Abdullah bin Thuk, recently called, and I quote him, for boosting cooperation among the Middle East countries to build a sustainable and an innovative tourism sector that can support their economies in the long run. And you know, I'm sure we talk about it, but travel and tourism is a major benefactor to the global economy. Ultimately, I suppose it will also make 
business travel easier? You know, if you live here in the UAE, you can just get one visa for Saudi and then you'll be able to travel to Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman and Qatar as well. No, absolutely. And I think that uh, that is a very important aspect of travel and tourism. It's not just about leisure. It's also about business. It's about conferences and conventions. And it's just facilitating the whole process in terms of people traveling. I mean, we've, we've even seen uh, a very specific uh, initiative recently with uh, with Ras al-Khaimah. Ras al-Khaimah and Oman have agreed to cooperate more in promoting travel from Ras al-Khaimah to the Muslim area and vice versa. And again, to me, this uh, totally enhances the experience and improves the experience for people traveling within this region to know that they can move around. We can have two center destination holidays and another area actually I think that's really important is the fact that uh, the whole uh, aspect of staycations and domestic uh, tourism because there are so many expatriates living in this part of the world if you think of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and indeed of all of the GCC we can certainly see that uh, inter-GCC travel for people uh, who need visas will now be much much easier and I'm sure will encourage an awful lot of that travel Okay, there might be some more outbound uh, travel from this country, even the UAE, to Saudi Arabia. But uh, for sure, it will continue to move in the in the opposite direction as well. And even now, India, for example, account is is, is the number one, or at least it was in twenty. 22 is an, is the number one uh, source market into the United into Dubai. Of course, it would make it a lot easier. You know, if you wanted to pop over the border to Oman, you wouldn't have to go through the faff of getting a, a visa at the border. You probably still have to show your car insurance thing. But it will just make it much more simple for, for you and I to go on holiday in the region. And I suppose it is arguably more sustainable to go on holiday closer to home. Well, the whole sustainability issue, I mean, we could talk for another <laughs> half an hour about that in relation to travel and tourism. Probably, yes. Uh, but I think I would also argue that uh, the the aviation industry really gets a very hard time uh, from the climate change activists, uh, particularly since aviation contributes up to about 3% of total uh, carbon emissions, which is far less than others. But it's very much in the limelight, very much there where people are saying, well, it's discretionary, you don't have to travel. But when you look at, we're, we're saying in the GCC that by 2033, they're saying that 12.6% uh, of the of the GDP will be contributed to that from tourism, and that translates in U.S. dollars to 305 billion dollars in the region. So our industry, travel and tourism, is already at 10% of global GDP. It's doing about almost 11% of global jobs, which is about 330 million people. So not to give you too many figures, but just to emphasize that, uh, that actually our industry, travel, tourism and hospitality, is already one of the major contributors to the global economy. So we're set to benefit. All of those numbers are big and positive and, and, and encouraging, yeah. it has to be said. I mean, one of the interesting uh, announcements when this was announced uh, in the last sort of 24 hours, the GCC Secretary General Jassim al-Badawi said yeah. that it will streamline travel logistics. But he also talked about how it will underpin the continuous communication and coordination between the GCC states. Now, 
I'm not going to get into geopolitics, but is it fair to say that tourism and, you know, economic prosperity and shared economic prosperity can sort of oil the wheels of uh, countries becoming more friendly with each other, shall we say? Travel and tourism is a force for good. And why? It's apart from the economic benefit, actually, from a society point of view, it brings people together. It gets people to know each other. And by knowing each other, we start to respect each other. And I'm really thrilled to see this uh, GCC initiative. I was here, I think it was in 1981 when it was first announced, and everybody was very excited about it. And I think it is a great thing to have this Gulf Cooperation Council. And that's exactly what it is. And as you say, without getting into geopolitics or anything, this is something that can only be beneficial, can only be good for the economy, but also definitely good for society. Gerald Lawless, an absolute pleasure to have you join us on the radio. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your Friday to come on the agenda on Dubai I 103.8. That is, of course, Gerald Lawless. He's a former president of the World Travel and Tourism Council. He's a current ambassador for them. And of course, we all know him very well here in the UAE as the former CEO of Jumeirah Group. Thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Fair to say that we've had a fair few negative headlines over the last week when it comes to climate change. Now, do you know, it's quite an interesting problem that we face here on the agenda, because obviously we're getting these stories every single day. You know, every literally every single day, another report comes out and reminds us all that the earth is warming. And it's really hard to sort of pick which ones are most sort of interesting to everybody you know it's not like we're all sitting around having coffee talking about the situation with the environment or I mean or maybe I'm wrong maybe people do sit around and talk about it and I think maybe the problem is is that we don't and we've all got a a bit used to it and let's be honest it's not much fun talking about how the world is sort of going to hell in a handcart but unfortunately we are all going to have to confront it uh, to a certain extent and and I think probably to quite a big extent but I'm not the person to tell you you have to do that I I think probably governments policymakers, climate change activists I think they'll be doing it um, you know hand in hand but certainly it, it does leave us with a difficult decision to make on the radio how much we talk about it how much we get into it But there were enough bad headlines this week for us to get into it. Um, And that's why we are going to be talking about it over the next 10 minutes or so. Because just days after scientists confirmed that this October was the hottest October on record, another climate study has now confirmed that we just lived through the planet's hottest 12 months in at least 125,000 years. I have no idea how they work that out, but you just have to trust them. You know, in the same way as I don't know how a television works, I don't know how people do heart surgery. You sort of have to trust the experts on this. And fair to say that we have been warned for quite a while that it was going to have a big impact on uh, and cause extreme weather. And, And that is what we have been seeing over the last 12 months. Flash floods, wildfires, droughts. And we are now weeks out from COP28. In fact, by my calculations goodness, maybe just three weeks. Just how concerning is this picture? Well, to find out more, earlier this morning, we caught up with Brendan Miller. He is a meteorologist. He's also CNN's climate crisis beat leader. 
And he explained that we are now seeing a predictably negative pattern. This tells us certainly that the last 80 years or so, there's never been an October hotter than than the one we just experienced, and that continues a trend of the last five months, really since June, that have all been hottest for their respective months, averaged as a whole planet. July. Of, For instance, was the hottest of all months ever experienced, and that's because July tends to be the hottest month of the year as it gets the most solar radiation, and there's more land in the northern hemisphere getting that sun to soak it all in. But then that was followed by August, which was once again hotter than all the previous months ever experienced, save for just July. So we really have ratcheted things up. And ratcheted up the intensity of global warming this year, especially in those last five months, and it's been a pretty shocking trend. Interesting there to hear from Brendan Miller.、Uh, you know, creating rather a sort of negative picture. It's fair to say it is undoubtedly getting hotter, but is that entirely the result of human-caused carbon emissions? Or is there more to it? And that is a question that I know lots of people ask, and, and and some people still, you know, debate whether or not climate change is caused by humankind. I certainly, with the experts on this, I, I think it pretty much obviously is. But I know that is still a source for discussion for some people. Brendan says that while it is largely a man-made picture, there are a few other elements at play. The main thing behind it is obviously global warming. And that is man-made climate change. You know that's why every year is nearly hotter than the last. Why we've seen this steady or even increasing drumbeat upwards going back the last forty, fifty years. And that is caused by we know carbon emissions, by the emissions of greenhouse gases that warm the planet. And those come largely from human activities. For instance, oil and gas extraction is obviously one of the biggest and you know most often pointed to. But that. Every year isn't quite hotter than the last. It's not a linear trend, and that's because we have some other things that play a role. Natural cycles such as El Nino and La Nina. La Nina tends to be like a natural air conditioning to the planet and cool it down, and and El Nino conversely is a warmer ocean, which just tends to warm up everything around it and warm global temperatures. And that's what we have this year for the first time in a number of years. So 2016 was previously the hottest year on record, and that was of course an El Nino year. And this one is setting up to to already be an El Nino year and next year as well. So that's kind of doubling down on the heating elements. We're we're naturally heating it more by continually pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and then El Nino is sort of naturally building it up、uh, at the same time. And there's a few other things. There there are these things called aerosols, or which are really just pollution particles. In the atmosphere that have been in the atmosphere now for at increasing rates for for many decades, and then in the last few decades, we've started to ramp those levels down. Pollution. I mean, you see that in smog in areas like China in California. That's often not quite as bad as it used to be in the in the 70s and 80s before we cleaned up a lot of that pollution. And just here in the last couple of years, there's been major policy that has limited the amount coming from shipping lanes over the ocean. And so scientists think that's playing a role as well. That sort of masked the global warming that we were were getting through these pollution particles in the atmosphere, sort of making more clouds and 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 keeping more sunlight away. 
So while it's a good thing that that air is getting cleaned up, it helps our health, you know, helps prevent global warming in the long run. It, it can tend to warm things up a little bit more in the short term just by allowing more sunlight in. So given that complex picture, just how worried are the world's climate experts? Here's Brandon Miller, CNN's meteorologist again. This trend, especially this year in the last couple months, has climatologists very concerned. Even those that have been studying temperature trends for a long time, they're amazed at how much this year temperatures have spiked. And these anomalies, which is you know, how much warmer than average we are has reached this 1.5 to 1.7 degrees Celsius, which is uh, sort of beyond that 1.5 degree threshold that scientists have warned us about for many years now, that that climate impacts would begin to increase rapidly and there'd be cascading impacts from global warming. And we are seeing those, you know, from hurricanes like Hurricane Otis becoming the strongest one to ever hit in the East Pacific last month, late in October. You know, we should be very much winding down hurricane season there, not seeing the strongest storm. And it went from a tropical storm to a Category 5 hurricane stronger than than anything that had ever hit land there. Those are the things that scientists have pointed to as things that are going to happen more frequently and, and storms getting stronger, storms getting more dangerous and it happening faster. And over a larger part of the year, you know, these storms aren't just happening in August and September when when ocean temperatures were typically at their hottest. Right now, even in November, they're still in September and early October sea surface temperatures. So that's just going to make it more likely to see those type of storms. What's more, the Middle East, he says, is now demonstrably feeling the effects. And Brendan warns that recent droughts in parts of our region are an ominous sign of things to come. We're also seeing long-term droughts exacerbated by these higher temperatures. Just this week, we saw this study come out of the World Weather Attribution Group, which is a group of scientists that are able to take real-world weather, things that happen, storms and rainfall events and, and then droughts, and they're able to look at them in a climate context, look at them historically and see uh, how much our warming of the planet has juiced up these storms. And what they found right there in the Middle East, that that temperatures are increasing and these higher temperatures driven by the climate change made the drought there in Syria and Iraq and Iran more than 25 times more likely than it would have been if climate change had not occurred in these regions and in the planet as a whole. And actually that this particular drought, as bad as it has been, would not have occurred if we hadn't warmed the planet over these last decades. This drought is not unique. It's happening elsewhere in the world, but but here in this part of the world, droughts like this are going to, instead of being something that happens, you know, very rarely once in a hundred years, or in this case, probably not ever, they can be expected to occur once every decade or even twice in a decade. So these are events that are our new reality and they are these cascading effects that climate scientists have warned us about for so long and, and we tend to think they're far off, but we know that they're not. So it all begs the question, with the COP28 climate talks just weeks away, four weeks in fact, will this raft of concerning reports just serve to focus minds? Brandon says only time can tell. COP28 is uh, almost upon us here. And so, yeah, that's the question is, is will these off the chart temperatures 
add to the urgency and these negotiations that will take place. And, you know, I think so. I, I, I'm always an optimist and I think that's the case. But then again, this isn't new. This isn't the first year that we've had the hottest on record or that going into COP28, there's been a rash of extreme weather events that have gotten the collective planet's attention. You know, I've been doing this for over a decade and it's happened nearly every year that I can think of. But, you know, maybe the fact that we have sort of breached this 1.5 degree anomaly for the first time will make things seem more urgent, not something we can continue to kick down the road. And maybe the fact that it is in the UAE and a petrol state, that that could end up being a good thing because we're going to need Middle Eastern oil states and large multinational oil and energy companies to help make real progress in clean energy and draw down those carbon emissions, which again is really what's driving this temperature and all the crazy weather impacts that go with it. Brandon Miller there. He is a professional meteorologist, also CNN's climate crisis beat leader, which means he is uh, basically leading their climate coverage. And of course, we will also be leading your climate coverage right here on Dubai Eye 103.8, keeping across all the developments in the climate sector as those preparations for COP28 continue. And I know that, uh, for example, the Business Breakfast will be broadcasting live from that COP28 event in the coming weeks and months, in fact. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Nearly every drop of water that we use here in the UAE is created through a process of desalination, something that I'm sure nearly everyone here is aware. And while that has become a lot more efficient and therefore less energy hungry, it really does add to the UAE's carbon footprint. But what if you could create fresh water from seawater using energy generated from the sea, from the motion of the ocean? And yes, I really do like that phrase. And that's why I keep on saying it. Well, that is exactly what my guest is looking to do. Dragan Tutish is the CEO and founder of Onica Technologies. They're based in Quebec in Canada. And I spoke to him a bit earlier. He told me how his machines work. Our mission is to make the oceans a sustainable and affordable source of drinking water. And the way we do it is really by harnessing the wave energy to turn the seawater into drinking water. And in terms of functioning, what happens inside our systems that are essentially floating buoys uh, that are modular and connected together to bring water to the coast, uh, these systems are installed half a kilometer to two kilometers offshore, and they're anchored to the seafloor. So actually what you have on the system is essentially an anchor on the seafloor, a buoy on the surface, and a tether in between. And as the buoy wobbles around in waves, it actually pulls on that better that's anchored to the seafloor and as it pulls on that it compresses a pump similar to a bike pump so as it moves around it just compresses uncompresses the cylinder and as it does that pumping action it sucks in the seawater and it pumps it through reverse osmosis membranes which are essentially salt filters and the water that is being being generated is sent to the coast uh, with another water pipe and the remaining water with slightly more seawater is left offshore. So actually, we just extract the fresh water from the ocean and bring it to the coast. It sounds like a genius idea using this sort of tidal force. Is it scalable? Yeah, so, so the beauty of it is, instead of making it bigger and bigger, similar to what we see with the wind turbines, it's essentially closer to what we could see with solar panels. 
So for projects that would require thousands and hundreds of thousands of cubic meter in the in the future, actually you could just increase the number of units to accommodate that that water need. And so how much water do they make each day? How much water can they desalinate? So we have a number of different products for different water needs. We have the smallest one, which is really for emergency relief applications. It can be shipped and then it's deployed locally. And every day it can make the equivalent of about one cubic meter of water. So a thousand liters per day. So actually that same box that it fits, once it's installed, it can fill that box every day. So instead of shipping like bottled water and after some events, you could install a couple of these and every day you have the equivalent of those pads. So that's our smallest scale. We have a smaller project scale, which is the iceberg unit for smaller communities, small coastal industries. And it's about 50,000, up to 50,000 liters per day that the single unit can make. So 50 cubic meters per day. And you could essentially increase these to make a million liters per day or a thousand cubic meters per day with about 20 of them. With those aspects, we intend to be the cheapest way to desalinate where there is a wave action. It is very cheap and cheerful by the by the sounds of it. Have you worked out how much it costs per litre, for example? Because we have an idea of how much it costs per litre to desalinate water here in the UAE because it's one of the things we do a lot here. In, in the Middle East and UAE, like there's also a, a factor of scale as well, like the, the, the desalination plants that are, are really big and the costs are now becoming very competitive. But our strategy in terms of costing is really starting at the smaller scale in places where electricity is really expensive, like the Caribbean. So in those places, we be more uh, cost effective than the local desalination. Like the first solar panels or wind turbines that were really expensive compared to today. So we, we have so much so many ways to reduce the cost and bring it down and become more competitive even against really large desalination plants. And in terms of specific costs, it's so dependent, whether like it's the local labor cost, the uh, project scale influences a lot of the cost. So there is no like specific pinpoint, like this always costs like a uh, $2 per cubic meter or, or less. So it's it's really depending on the, the site. So the bottom line is in specific markets at today's scale, we can be cost competitive. And over time, we'll increase the markets in which we are cheaper than other alternatives. Can they survive storms? So the, the systems are designed to withstand storms up to a certain extreme. So for example, the largest storms that have been survived by the unit so far was six meter waves, which are relatively um, extreme conditions in Chile. But over time, we'll increase that extreme case. In the past, what we were doing is essentially like bringing back the units in safety in uh, extreme conditions. But as we experience the system in real life uh, demonstration, we can then leave the the arrays in those conditions. So, so far, we are also nearer to the shoreline compared to some other uh, offshore uh, applications. So typically the waves of like six meter uh, maximum are relatively uncommon. So even if it would be exceeding that, it's not so expensive. It takes us like two hours to bring a unit in safety if needed. So it can be relatively quick to bring back and redeploy if need be. It must feel really exciting to be coming up with a sustainable solution to desalinating water because it is a major problem faced around the world, but but obviously it's a huge deal over here in the Middle East. It is. I mean, for me, the, the beauty of, of combining entrepreneurship and engineering is that we can bring solutions that can have a meaningful impact on society. And with the right people toward the right mission, that's uh, exactly what we can do so much. And with Tonika, what we can do is both help adapt to climate change, 
but also mitigate climate change because the solution we bring also reduces the emission that would normally be emitted by conventional desalination. And now it's really a big step in the company as we have our two first deployments. And now we're starting to launch our commercial projects with our units from here. So this is the really exciting phase of the, the company. Dragon Tutish there, the CEO and founder of Onica Technologies, who are based in Quebec in Canada, telling me all about his brand new invention. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Hope the traffic on the school run isn't proving too dreadful. We're actually going to do a, a bit of a school topic now because we've had a bit of focus on internships on our show this week. And with only a month or so until the end of term, sorry about that reminder, are your children going to be getting work experience this winter holidays? Um, because it's now been 18 months since the law changed and teenagers aged 15 to 18 are now allowed to apply for a part-time work permit as long as they continue with their studies. They can even earn money. Wouldn't that be nice? However, um, it's fair to say that lots of young people are still struggling to find work. They're struggling to find the positions. And one school group looking to change that is one of the biggest in the country. It's GEMS. And earlier I spoke to Matthew Tompkins, who is Director of Student Employment. And I asked him to explain why he sees value in organising internships and work for his pupils. I suppose I could answer that from a, a Vice President of GEMS Education perspective, but I could also answer it from a parent perspective I've got two girls uh, 17 and 19 when we have kids we want the best for them and part of that is for them to be successful and happy throughout their lives and as industry moves on at such a rapid rate keeping pace with that for education is incredibly difficult so any sort of experience that we can give young people where they immerse themselves in industry they find out what they're really good at they learn new skills they become confident in that environment. For me as a parent, that makes me feel a lot happier about the fields that my daughters are going into. What is it exactly do you think that teenagers learn in the workplace? Because I'm guessing it's not just to make a good cup of coffee. <laughs> no, I think, I think I would term that as work experience. Internships for me are a completely different beast in that they provide young people with the opportunity to actually get hands-on experience of what the job will be like. So we at GEMS Education have, we've got about 50 industry partners now who we work alongside to provide incredible opportunities. We've got one coming up, uh, we're working with HSBC so that our young people who are really interested in, in working in sport get to work behind the scenes at the um, HSB Sevens tournament. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we, we're taking 30 students there on the Friday to have a look at what the commentators do, to have a look at what the logistics people do, work with the media team. So to do all of that sort of work and understand what it's really like to work in sport. So you mentioned one of your partners there, HSBC. Do you find it difficult to find partners who are happy to have packs of teenagers lurking around their workplace? Our internships offer very, very different styles of placements. So we have those companies who only offer one internship at a time and give them a really deep experience, either in a, a combination of roles, so you get to try everything within the industry, or in something very, very specific. Not every employer needs to take 30, 50 interns. A lot of the companies we work with 
only take one at a time. Even so, it's quite an effort to enroll an intern, spend the time to teaching them how to do things, taking responsibility for them ultimately, especially if they're really quite young, you know, 15 to 18, some 15-year-olds are very young indeed. Do these sort of various corporates, various multinationals, obviously I imagine you deal with people at every you know, level of, of size of company, do they feel that they gain from these experiences as well? Yeah, I mean, we gave just over 8,100 industry inspirations last year across our GEM schools. So, so we've got a lot of people engaging and that's internships, that's having speakers come into school, that's working alongside our alumni, sometimes as a speaker, sometimes as a coach. There's a whole range of experiences that we can provide to young people. What we also did at the beginning of last year is we surveyed our students to see what sorts of industries they wanted to go into. So we've targeted very specific sectors to make sure that we're serving our community as best we can. Matthew Tompkins there, Director of Student Employment from GEMS. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. Regular listeners will know that 10.39 is our normal time to do the sports headlines. Uh, sadly, Chris McCarty is unavailable today. Robbie Greenfield is available, but is doing something like recording a podcast or something essential. Oh my goodness, I'm literally insulting him and he's come to the door. Come on in, Robbie. Will you want to come and do sport? I was just saying that you were doing your podcast. Robbie has literally come into the door and is going to sit down now and do the do the sport. But I think he's... Were you doing a podcast, Robbie? I was just saying you were doing something ridiculous like your own job and therefore didn't have time to come on the radio. Well, yes, indeed. Um, but uh, I'll make time for you, Georgia. This is very kind uh, of it's, you. It's all a little bit... Uh, what can I say? Um, underprepared, undercooked, a little bit like our show off script. <laughs> you can do sport it's a bit, it's with a bit your... fluid. If I literally held one arm behind your back and made you hop and without headphones, you uh, could still tell me exactly what has been happening in the world of sport I over the last that. 24 yeah. hours. You and Chris <laughs> live and breathe it. Uh, literally, I think you could... If I had to go now... Okay, okay, Robbie, talk now for 45 minutes about your... About the cricket. 45 minutes is a stretch, but I could do 45 seconds. How about that? You could do 45 seconds. What is the the top story in the sporting world for you right now? Um... Well, I suppose we're looking ahead to the weekend. I, I suppose the big story out of football is is the fact that uh, Toulouse were successful over Liverpool last night, 3-2. Um, and what amused me highly about this this particular match, um, it won't have amused Liverpool fans, it just certainly didn't amuse Jurgen Klopp, was that he had to conduct his press conference in a makeshift tent outside the stadium. And <laughs> Toulouse fans, who were absolutely giddy at the fact that their side, who had been beaten 5-1 at Anfield, uh, have only really struggled in Liga 1 um, and were not expected to win, even on their home ground against the mighty Liverpool. They'd pulled off a 3-2 win and their fans were banging on the side of the media tent and chanting outside while Jürgen was trying to <laughs> conduct his media conference. And you can see there's a little clip up uh, on uh, X or you can find it on wherever you get your social media where he's essentially asking what the heck is going on. I'm going to see can if people, I can find can, it. Can people move these guys along? Um, I'm going to see. He's not amused because he's trying to explain how and why his team produced such a subpar poor performance and uh, the Toulouse fans are not really allowing him to think straight. Have a listen to this. I would have loved to get the point because performance wouldn't have been better but we have a point. 
So it's just we have to be better in these moments, 100%. And that's it. And who had the idea to, to do the press conference here? That would be a really interesting question. Wow. There they are. <laughs> yeah, that man is not happy. And, you know, Jürgen is uh, generally seen to be a pretty happy-go-lucky kind of chap. So it takes, takes a while night. to rattle, t- takes a lot to rattle him. Um, but that was Liverpool. They lost 3-2. I don't think it massively affects their chances of qualifying for the knockout stages of the Europa League, but it will certainly sting. That's for sure. Uh, it will for Liverpool. Um, West Ham, they were also successful. They beat Olympiacos 1-0 last night. It was a good win for Rangers over Sparta Prague. Real Betis beat Limassol. Um, other results, Brighton, they managed to pick up a victory as well. Aston Villa won over Alkmaar. So it was a good good night for English clubs other than Liverpool, it's fair to say, in the Europa League. We're looking ahead to some of the domestic action coming in the Premier League tomorrow. And in the Cricket World Cup, Georgia, Afghanistan, I mean, still probably shell-shocked from what happened in that match against Australia where Glenn Maxwell just clobbered, clobbered them, clubbed them all over the ground. Was that with, when he got two centuries? Yeah, 201 not out. Uh, he's been talking about that we continue to marvel at that uh, performance and he was injured it was quite extraordinary but Afghanistan felt must have felt like they had one foot in the semi-finals this is a team that only won one match in the last ICC Cricket World Cup so to, to, to do that to beat England to cut to have the results that they've had and to run Australia to force Australia to produce arguably the greatest ODI winning innings of all time to beat them they will be looking to bounce back. Unfortunately, there will be no semi-final place for Afghanistan. There probably will for South Africa. That match gets underway in Ahmedabad in the biggest stadium in world cricket at the Narendra Modi Stadium in uh, just a few hours' time. Now, we've got one week to go until a very exciting tournament, haven't we? We certainly have, yes. DP Are you World Tour up? Championship. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. DP World Tour, it's in its penultimate week. Uh, currently, they're down in South Africa playing in the Nedbank Golf Challenge. The top 50 players on the DP World Tour, including John Rahm, including Rory McIlroy, including Tommy Fleetwood, they're all going to be here and they're going to be competing for, once again, the season-ending finale. And have you noticed, I cannot wait. Yeah, I have noticed. You literally lit up as soon as I mentioned it. I mean, always cheerful talking about sport there was an extra uh, sort of tinkerbell twist absolute one of my favorite weeks of the year being out there we do a bit of on-course commentary yeah. and uh, it's always a very dramatic event and it's always so well supported and well attended georgia they well, do a very good job of making it accessible and enjoyable for families who have absolutely no interest in golf whatsoever well uh, speaking of which <laughs> or families where half of them have an excitement for golf and half of them don't for example sure. uh, and in fact my dad has actually flown over for it and wow. arrived late last night so my uh, my dad and my stepmother will be going this weekend coming not you know weekend after next and um and i won't <laughs> but they Fair are enough. very very excited Fair indeed enough. we can't convert everyone unfortunately. No, well, actually i do quite like golf you know it's all right i like it when they miss that's the best when you get the people who are the very best in the world and they're on that 18th tee and it's really really close and then they miss. That's the whole point. That's yeah. why we follow it, Georgia. Yeah, really to see good. human pain and suffering. It's, it's basically you're etched all... on the face of multi-millionaire yeah. golfers. You're basically all masochists, <laughs> aren't you? Uh, Robbie, always a love pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us yeah, uh, and at short sure. notice. Really, no really appreciate it. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.